Today we're going to complete chapter 50, but last week, chapter 49, I had to hurry through the end there. Jacob, the last of the patriarchs, is he is uh, on his deathbed. He's 147 years old. How would you feel if you were 147 years old? <clears throat> However you feel now, and like triple it or, you know, or double it, whatever. But last week we went into some detail about uh, the prophecies he gave to each of his sons, his 12 sons. He's on his deathbed. He's leaning on his, his cane. It, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's prophesying over sons, and he's giving a blessing. And that's kind of what happened at the end of these guys' lives. They would give blessings, and, and basically they were prophecies. So it wasn't always a blessing. It was just telling them how it was going to be, you know. And so we talked about that. But the most prominent prophecy, the main one, the most important one, was directed toward Israel's son, Judah. Israel, another name for Jacob. Judah, because as we know, Jesus, the Messiah, would come through Judah. And we talked about him that Judah would have the Messiah, and that Messiah is the Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ, none other, King of kings, Lord of lords. He is both the Lion and the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain, but I tell you what, he's coming back as a Lion. It's going to be fierce and awesome, and I'm thankful that we will be able to be with him. And we want to continue to be faithful to the calling that the Lion of Judah has called us to, to preach the gospel in every day and every way. But Jesus is described in Revelation chapter 5, and I encourage you to read that as the lion. <clears throat> but if you missed last week's message or you'd like to review any of those things, you can do so on our website, right? So in chapter 49, it says that Jacob told his sons to take him back to the land of, of, that God promised. Remember, they came down to Egypt. He says in chapter 49, verse 29, it says, you bury, my father, uh, you bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave of the field of Machpelah, near Mamre in Canaan. He's given directions here. Which Abraham brought along with the field as a burial place for Ephron the Hittite. Verse 31 of 49, it's not on the screen, I don't think. <clears throat> That's fine, I didn't put it up there. It says, uh, there Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. And there Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that entered were bought by the Hittites. And Jacob says, hey, bury me back in Canaan, back with my father and my grandfather and their wives. Bury me back in that cave where I buried Leah. And I just think that's very interesting. If you remember, Jacob was deceived by his father-in-law. Anybody remember that? Loved Rachel, saw her and just said, oh man, she's like everything I ever wanted. He goes, well, we work for her for seven years, works for seven years. They have the marriage thing. She has a veil on, most likely, goes into the tent. They consummate the marriage, wakes up, and it's lazy eyes. It's, it's Leah, the sister. Remember that? He's like, what in the world? You deceived me. And we know that Jacob's getting what he wants, what, he, what he's done to other people. And so he, there he is. He wakes up with Leah, not the person he wanted to be with. And then he says, his father-in-law says, hey, work another seven years. And he worked another seven years, and it was as if it was a day because he loved her so much and all this flowery talk, you know. And so he finally had Rachel. So he has these two wives, and these two wives, they just love each other now, sisters, right? And they fight, and then they get concubines. Each had, like, uh, you know, uh, maidens or whatever you want to call them, servants, and then they give them to her husband. And so you've got all these women having kids in this family, and you've got four, four wives, basically, and you have the 12 tribes coming out of that. Well, Judah, who does Judah come from? Judah, which would have the Messiah, comes from Leah. 
Very interesting. I love that. Jacob has this intense love for Rhea, uh, for, for, uh, I'm sorry, for Rachel. And Rachel, remember, she died in Bethlehem and he buried her near there. But he buried Leah in that place of prominence. He buried Leah in that place of prominence. And it would seem that over the years, even though Jacob might have been tricked into marrying her, that in the end she became a great blessing in his life. You know, and this, there's something to that. Sometimes we don't end up marrying the peop- person we thought we were marrying. Anyone? <laughs> Just a couple, all right. <clears throat> I was tricked, you know. You aren't who I thought you were. What's going on? I got, you know, you wake up with lazy eyes. I'm just kidding. No, that you wake up <laughs> with a Leia of character, right? You know what I'm saying? Let me wax poetic there. But in character... But you know what? Something about the Lord, if, if we are in relationship with the Lord, if we are loving the Lord, it's amazing how Leah just ends up being the exact person we need to see Christ. To see Christ. You know, the beauty, it fades away, does it not? But the character, and as we look at Leah, as we go back and kind of just look at who she was, the way she named her children, she was pleading with God. She had this deep need in her life. She was a very broken woman. Her sister was more beautiful than she was, and she was just, that just tormented her day and night. And she had this, will I ever be loved? Will I ever be loved type of situation? She would name her kids, you know, this, this pleading type of thing. Each of their names had a significance in the Hebrew that was just calling out to God, and there was this deep, rich relationship that was going on there. And doesn't it just make sense that through her, the Messiah would be born eventually? I love how the Lord works. And, you know, as I was reading that, I was looking at Isaiah 53, which is really the only physical description we have of Jesus walking on the earth. Obviously, we have post-resurrection and some other things going on there. But. And it says who, in Isaiah 53, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering. He had emotional issues and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low low esteem. And it goes on to describe what the Messiah would do and bear for each of us. And Jacob says, you know, bury me next to my grandfather, next to my father and their wives, the women of faith. Bury me next to Leah. And I just think that there's a a significance there. Not that he didn't love Rachel, but I think there's a spiritual significance there, what the Lord was doing in his heart through this woman. And obviously it's connected with the Messiah. And so what a picture of that change in Israel's heart over the years and what he does. And in verse 33 of chapter 49, it says, when Jacob had finished giving instruction to his son, hey, bury me back in the land, guys. Don't let me stay here. He drew up his feet into his bed, breathed his last, and he was gathered to his people. I like what John Corson says about this verse. He says, we're all going to be gathered to our people. The question is, who are your people? Who are the people that you hang out with? Who are the people that you relate with? Who are the people that you are most comfortable being around? Who are your people? 
you know? And are they followers of Jesus? Or are they people of the goats? Sheep and goats. Yes, we're to have a heart for the lost. We're to be in the world, but not of it. There's a big difference there, isn't there? We're to be salt and light to the lost. We're not to engage in darkness. We dispel darkness because Christ is shining through us. Amen? So who are your people? Obviously, we are saved by grace through faith. That that should be shown through our lives and our actions, we, uh, the fruit that we bear in our lives. And so uh, take, take note. You know, I know you guys are hanging out in bars and things like that, so I, I'm just kidding. We want to hang around sinners, but we don't want to engage in the darkness. Amen? Amen. And so Joseph <coughs> threw himself on his father, chapter 50. And he wept over and he kissed him. And then verse 2, Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father, Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And I wanted to go quite into detail of this. I know you'd love it, but I just decided to keep it two sentences. But it just basically taking the brains out through the nose and all this wonderful stuff that the Egyptians did. But they preserved his body. And that would be important because he would want to be brought back into the land that would take some time. And remember also as well that Joseph would be brought back 420 years later. How would that happen? He was preserved. And so even God works in these mysterious ways. But he was embalmed and the process took 40 days and the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. And when the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, if I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, verse five, my father made me swear an oath and said, I'm about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, and then I will return. And Pharaoh said, go and bury your father as he has made you swear to do. So Joseph sends a request to Pharaoh's court, and Pharaoh says, go for it. Verse 7, Joseph went to bury his father, and all Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court, and all the dignitaries of Egypt, beside all the members of Joseph's house, household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and their herds were left in Goshen. Everybody went. Chariots and horsemen also went up with them. It was a very large company. And when they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there, Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. And when the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Etad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. And that's why the place near Jordan is called Abel Mizraim, which means the mourning of the Egyptians. And so Jacob's sons did as he commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought, and along with the field as a burial place from Ephraim the Hittite. Verse 14, after burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. What a, a tremendous procession for Jacob. What a tremendous procession. procession. Just had all the dignitaries come in, a total uh, royal burial. And I would say because it was because of the Lord and his connection to Joseph. And you know, it, it was, did anybody uh, check out the news how someone in Boston might have found old pictures of, uh, was it Lincoln's, uh, Lincoln's 
procession. They might have had old photos, what they might think they think is of, of Lincoln's procession in New York, of his burial after he was shot. It's pretty amazing. There's people hanging out in trees, and I mean, there was just such such fanfare. It was, it was amazing. There was so much going on. How important, how, how, uh, how that really struck the heart of the nation. And, and really, for Jacob, uh, this, this is unheard of. This, it, was, it was as if he was royalty, and he was, because his son uh, was, was the king, was the second in command of all of Egypt. And so, too, is our death precious in the eyes of the Lord because of Jesus Christ. And we are related to him. And it talks about that extensively in Scripture. But, so he goes back after this great time of mourning, many days. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, verse 6, they said, what is, jo- why, uh, what, is Joseph, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So it's been 17 or 22 years, I don't know. And they came under Joseph's protection a long time ago in Egypt, and now their father had died. And the brothers are now scared. Our brother has all this authority, and with our father gone, who's going to hold him back from getting revenge? Who's going to hold him back from getting revenge? Any of you had a patriarch pass away in your family? Kind of how are the relationships? Are they the same? Kind of sometimes it falls apart. Are they going to get us back? Is, is Joseph going to get us back for throwing him in the pit, for wanting to kill him, for selling him, for lying, for all the evil things we've done? And so this guilt and this worry is creeping up inside them. Verse 16, And so they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. Whether he did, he didn't. We didn't. We don't know. But verse 17, <clears throat> that's what it says. It says, This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God your father. What a powerful letter from their dad. You know, interceding for his sons, for their sons who are guilty. Joseph, forgive your brothers who treated you so badly, so poorly. How many of you have been treated really poorly? Have been hurt severely by relatives, by husbands, by wives, by children, by grandparents, by bosses? What a powerful letter. And when their message came to Joseph, Joseph wept. He cried. The word wept here isn't, isn't wailing, sobbing. It was just a, a gentle kind of streamy tears coming down your eyes. Just a, a gentle flow, it seemed. Perhaps it was hearing the words from his recently departed father, but I also think it had to do with the fact that they didn't understand that Joseph had forgiven them. He had forgiven them. 17 years ago, 22 years ago, somewhere in that time frame. Remember when they wept when Joseph he showed them who he really was he revealed who he was I am Joseph and they were terrified and he comforts them and he forgives them and says go get everybody come here come into this land I'll take care of you 
And these guys, for some reason, they couldn't believe that someone they had wronged so badly would forgive them so thoroughly. You know, I think sometimes I struggle with this. I think you struggle with this with your, with your greater than Joseph, Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think the enemy can get in there and play with our minds and our hearts, especially when we've been wandering. You know, we, we had wronged him so badly. Our sins were so grievous, so rebellious, so intentionally evil. And yet Jesus, he revealed himself to us and he forgave us. And we wept together. But time goes on and somehow either through circumstances or warfare or whatever it may be, perhaps we're blowing it and our hearts fail us and our faith is weakened and we look once again upon the enormity of our failure and go, how could you ever forgive me? How could you ever forgive me? You must be keeping a record of those wrongs that I have done and you're waiting for the right opportunity to smash me. Have you ever felt like that? I'm... Feelings are deceptive, believe me. I'm just saying, has anybody kind of had that little mind game going on in your head? You got to be getting tired of me, Lord. You know, like those brothers, I've been under your care now for 17 years, for 30 years, however long it's been. You must be, get, get tired of forgiving me, Lord, and cleaning up my messes. And Don't you know what you purchased? Don't you know what you've done? You must be angry with me any day now. I think Joseph being a picture of Jesus, he responds. He, you know, it just says that Joseph wept. Upon hearing their unbelief, I think, upon hearing this, he, I think he just broke. Remembering, perhaps, humanly from Joseph's perspective, the pain that had been caused him, I don't know. But Joseph must have been broken that they would have first, they they would uh, that they uh, would first have not known who he was, and by now what his intentions were for them and their families. And the fact that they just like wasted twenty years of their lives. They wasted twenty years of their lives worrying about something that had no basis in reality. No basis. wasted your life worrying or not whether I've forgiven you. I said I did and I did. And brothers and sisters, that is what we hang everything upon, what Jesus says. Not how we feel, not what we've done, but what he says. We're not saved by how we feel. We're not saved by what we've done. We were saved by what he's done and what he said, period. It's called grace and faith in that grace. Praise the Lord. wasted your life worrying about whether or not I've forgiven you. I told you back then it was dealt with. How quickly we too forget the cross. Not only what he said, but what he did to prove but what he did to prove it, right? God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. But his brothers then came to him, verse 18, and threw themselves down before him. We're your slaves, they said, but Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? David Guzik said, from a human perspective, Joseph had the right and the ability to bring retribution upon his brothers, right? Second command of all, I, he had all authority to do these things. He had the right. If anybody had a right to do it, he had the right, right? Right. But he knew God was God, and he was not. Such retribution was, 
It was God's place, not Joseph's. We're not the judge. God is. He has the full spectrum of facts and information. We do not. That's something I am learning. I do not have all the information. I certainly think I do. And I know many of you think I do. I do not. For some weird reason, you're deceived. <laughs> Just ask my wife. I have, I'm, I'm, very, I'm working on very limited things here. But Joseph, he, he just has this humility about him. He goes, you know what? Am I in the place of God? Am I God? Now, Joseph's very powerful, is he not? But he said he knows his place before the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Am I God? That is not my position. God is judge. Am I in the place of God? In verse 20, and this is so important, brothers and sisters, and this is kind of the main thrust here in the end. I know. It says, you intended to harm me, but God. Underline that, but God. You intended to harm me, but God, right? And intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You know, Joseph, he called it like it was. He said, hey, you guys meant to do evil to me. You meant to harm me. He didn't pretend like it didn't happen. He wasn't in this, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, you guys, that's exactly what happened. You guys meant to hurt me. But God. Underline it. Because this is what marks the life of each believer. That's what marks our lives. What man intends, what we intended, but what God intends. God intervenes. He jumps in. Romans 8.28, it's thrown around quite often. And we know all things work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. We tend to say for those who, you know, all things work together. For those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Do you love God? Are you called according to his purpose? You know, if we don't see God in our lives, that he said he would be and is directing, directly involved in our lives and our circumstances, guess what? If we don't see God in the circumstances, we become angry, we become bitter, we become depressed, we become overwhelmed. If we don't see the Lord in the middle of it, it's just the intentions of man, is it not? Just the circumstances that are happening to me. And we can live our whole lives, our whole lives, brothers and sisters, and I bet some of you have and are, living your whole lives without the perspective that actually this is what man intends, this is what the circumstances are, want to do, but God. You've been saved, you're brought into his kingdom for a purpose, God is working out a plan. He's in the middle of it. Even in the midst of our failures and our, our shortcomings, the Lord's grace is amazing. We see that over and over in Jacob's life. You tend to harm me, but the Lord intervened. If we don't see God in our lives, we can become angry and bitter and unforgiving to people. 
It's so easy to become unforgiving, isn't it? To hold on to it if we don't see the redemption in it. But in the same light, when we realize that circumstances, they may be difficult to say the least, but we realize that God is presently at work in redeeming the circumstances. He's with us, he's in us. It frees us to forgive others when we are mistreated because we know that though we are hurt, God has got our backs. God will work it out. And don't we have that picture in Christ Jesus? When we trust him, we're free to forgive. Joseph saw God's purpose and was able to forgive his brothers long ago. He didn't say it was good and fine and everything was wonderful, but he was free to let go. He was free to forgive because he knew God was working something out. Now, forgiveness doesn't mean that we pretend that no wrong was done. As we said in verse 20, you intended to harm me, but this is what happened. Joseph was clear. You meant evil towards me. That's the fact. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you trust a person. You don't trust them until they bear fruit worthy of trust. You will know them by their fruit. When they show fruit that they've changed in their lives, actions, character that's changed, begin to trust. Forgiveness and trust are two different things. We don't trust by words. We trust by actions. Joseph spent a long time through scenarios with his brothers. Remember Benjamin? Remember the cups? Remember the money? What was he doing there? He's bringing up scenarios in his brothers' lives to where their actions would be shown forth. He could see if they'd really changed, if they'd really become a different person, if they'd really repented, would they take that youngest loved son just like they did with Joseph? Would they take Benjamin and just leave him in Egypt and bail? Would they do the same thing? No, they didn't. They were changed people. And he began to trust them took a while. But just because I forgive a person does not mean I trust the person until there's fruit worthy of trust. Also, forgiveness is not based upon a feeling. Forgiveness is not based upon a feeling. Biblical forgiveness. I feel like forgiving. How many of you feel like forgiving? That's like, you got to have all the moons lined up and like eat the right food that day. I have no idea what's going on. In our flesh, we don't forgive. We hold grudges, don't we? We hold on to it. It's not based on the freeing. It's an act of my will in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ who commands me to forgive those who sin against me. Jesus commands you to forgive those who have sinned against you. It is not up for debate. It's, in my life, it is not up for debate. He commands me. And either he's Lord or he isn't. I must forgive. It's not a feeling, it's obedience. We forgive because our, forgot, our Father forgave us. Remember the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, 9-14? This is our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is heaven. Yay! Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Those willful things that have happened to us. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. And we often stop there, but then Jesus continues on in the commentary. He doesn't stop. He says, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. He didn't stop. He kept on talking. 
It says, for the reason why you forgive, the reason why you ask is so that you will be forgiven. And that's kind of what the Lord laid down here. You have to wrestle with it. Matthew 6, 14. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Forgiveness is a command. I must forgive those who sin against me. It's not optional. How many of you are, hold unforgiveness in your heart towards someone this morning? The Lord Jesus would say, repent. Forgive. Forgive. It's not a feelings thing. It's an obedience thing. And we know something about the Lord. When we step out to do what he's called us to do, what does he do? He empowers us to do it. He empowers us to do it. But we must step in obedience. We must. In church, the Lord will, I think his spirit will continue to be quenched in what could be and what should be and what he wants to do and through our families and through our lives and through this valley will be quenched if we hold on to, un, if, to that unforgiveness. When we don't forgive others, we become angry, we become bitter, we become depressed. All these things wrap us. So don't let it go today. If the Lord is nudging on your heart, even the slightest thing, and you're going, oh, no, 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 never mind. That's not it. Any of that just happened? I know you're out there. Don't let it go. Take that before the Lord. Open his word and say, I have to go on autopilot. And you forgive. And really, when we forgive from the heart, it's awesome. Jesus says his commands are not burdensome. His commands are not burdensome. I know that sounds like burden, but rather it's for our freedom, it's for our liberty. When we forgive people, when we release that, guess who gets freed? Us. We become free in our hearts to love. We need a lot of liberty, don't we? A lot of freedom in our hearts. There's a lot of things that bind us. But when we forgive from the heart as the Lord has done towards us, we are free from it. We begin to become free from anger and from bitterness and the shrapnel that comes from unforgiveness and it's twisted. And as the fellowship of the redeemed, we are to have a culture of forgiveness. We are to have a culture of forgiveness, a seven times 70 culture. Not that we don't call sin what sin is, not that we don't say, like Joseph said, that's what it was. But we absolutely forgive. 70 times 70. Seven, some, something. Some, you know how I am with math. It's way up there. One of those numbers. We forgive. Realizing, guess what? I'm going to say something that offends you. Did you know that? I'm going to open my mouth and Matt, the flesh, will start talking and I will say something in a, in a way that wasn't right and it's going to hurt your heart. And I'll be accountable for the Lord for all those things. I'll say something wrong, and guess what? You're going you're gonna to rub me the wrong way too. Did you know that? We should have a culture of grace and forgiveness. I don't have all the facts in your life. You don't all have all the facts in mine. But we should come together. You know what you said 
kind of, it hurt me. It hurt my heart, man. There should be that openness in our lives. And if the Holy Spirit is working in our lives, you know what? He's going to convict me of that. He's going to use it to work on my life and to change me. Initially, the shields will be up, of course, right? That's why we come back again. We come back again. And then there's this culture of like, you know what? It's okay if we blow it. We love each other. We're going to work through these things like the Lord is with us. How many want to live in that kind of world? Yeah, the kingdom of heaven. It's pretty cool. Truth in love. We don't pretend like nothing happens, but we address it head on. 70 times 7, but we're to have to live in the light of the cross. Brothers and sisters, we must continually go to the cross to keep that tender heart of forgiveness before us, to remind us of man's intentions and God's intentions. Really quickly, man's intentions, God's intentions. Man has his ideas, but God, and then God gets in there and changes life, right? Ephesians 2, I'm just going to read a few verses. And you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. Man's way, right? According to the prince of the power of the air. That's man's way. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom all also we were all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, just as the others. That's who we were. Verse 4, but God. who is rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come, this is an awesome verse, everybody, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He upped the ante. But do you see man's intentions in God's plan? He gets in there. He wants to bring life. You intended evil. We intended evil. But God takes around. He gets in the middle of it and even uses it for good. The reason for me starting to play guitar was definitely not to praise the Lord. And I honed those skills in evil songs and all that type of stuff and I was false worship leader. Even while I was doing that junk, God was fashioning a skill that it would eventually be used for his glory in the church. How can he redeem people like that? Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. You intended to harm me, Joseph said to his brother, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That's what God wants to do, save lives through us. And that's what God is doing through our hardships bringing life from ashes. One more verse here. 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 through uh, 7. It says, Praise be to God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the blessings, I'm sorry, abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Hey, if we're distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope is for you to be firm. It's for firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also 
you share in our comfort. And this is an apostolic type of thing. He's talking to his church saying, hey, look at the things we've gone through. We're examples so that you'll be comforted. But friends, the things that you've suffered through, remember, big picture, Joseph having trouble in his life, it was meant for evil. The things that you are suffering through, God will use as you lay it at his feet to take those things and use it to comfort the body of Christ. Look around you. How many people are going through trials? One praise to, one praise report to seven, oh my gosh, help me this morning. Amen? How many of you have gone victorious through trials recently? Okay, a couple of you. Three of us. We've got our work cut out. <laughs> Take these things to comfort others. Joseph experienced great suffering and his life was used by God to minister to those who were suffering, didn't he? He's able to have that compassion to comfort them, to bless them, even the very people who hurt him. And that's what Jesus did. On the cross, what did he say? Forgive them for they know not what they do. Just like Jesus. So verse 21, let's finish up. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. What did he do before when he was testing their motives? He spoke harshly to them to reveal character. And then he comes and he comforts them and he speaks kindly to them. Speak kindly to one another. Verse 22, Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family and he lived 110 years. And he saw a third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of uh, Machir, son of Manasseh, uh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. How cool it is to have great-grandchildren, great-great-great-grandchildren. 24. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God. Interesting. But God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land into the land he promised on an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. Don't leave me here, guys. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, um, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. And 420 years later, so in Exodus chapter 13, God came to their aid. He would fulfill that prophecy. He would come to their aid through Moses. And in, in Exodus 13, Moses would bring Joseph's bones on a journey back into the promised land, just as it said. Just as he said. That's a kept promise. Isn't it awesome? You know, I'd, continue, I'd, I'd encourage you to continue on to the book of Exodus. In your personal study, there's a 400-plus year gap there. They've been in slavery for quite a while between the end of Genesis and the first chapter or so of, of Exodus. Exodus tells the story of a nation of Hebrew, the 12 tribes leaving bondage of Egypt and being led out by Moses on a 40-year journey back to the promised land of Canaan. So there's a lot there. You've got the priesthood set up, all this other stuff. The imagery starts to come in of Christ. And so read that along with Hebrews. But as for Sunday mornings, uh, the next three weeks, we're going to begin a, uh, just a, a three-week, you know, occasionally I do topically, I teach verse by verse, but I, I think the next three weeks, uh, talk to the elders, we're going to teach on the Holy Spirit, the person, the work of the Holy Spirit. I think with, in the church, there's so much uh, misconception of who he is. I'm not saying I have the, the angle on it, but I think that we go from one side to the other, you know, uh, 
barking and clucking and then we run away like crazy. Oh, we don't want to be associated with that. No, we just want to read the scriptures and what they say and say, Lord, you said it's, it's mine and I'm seeking you for him. And so the next three weeks, I want to teach on the Holy Spirit. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We have been filled since we were born again, but I mean that overflowing power in our lives. We're leaky, are we not? I leak all the time, day, day and night. The Spirit just, oh well. Lord, help me. Yeah, fill me again today. And that is what we need. We need the Holy Spirit to just point us to Jesus more and more every day. And so, and after that, we'll talk to you. I'll talk to you on Easter, where we're going next. I'm, I'm praying about it, and we have plans. So let's pray. Lord, we ask that um, this study of Genesis would go far beyond our our heads and go into our hearts, into our lives and our families. We thank you that we get to see how you, gracious Father, deal with sinful men. And Lord, how we like to think that we pursue you. Lord, this story has shown that you pursued every single one of these, these men, these women, and how you were faithful to bring them to a place of maturity and a place of faith. You were able to forgive their sin and to work in the midst of their families that were broken and messed up. Lord, do the same with us. We humble ourselves before you. We ask that if there's any unforgiveness in our hearts, Lord, that you bring it to the surface, that you'd cleanse us. We ask that we would be vessels that are empty of ourselves so we can be filled with you. Lord, I ask that you go ahead of us and prepare us for uh, just learning more about you, the Holy Spirit, and that you would fill this place, Lord, uh, with the love of Jesus Christ, and that we'd have joy and peace and patience and gentleness and self-control and all these things, these fruits, Lord, that would just flow from our lives more and more every day. Father, bless the food as we go and eat. Thank you so much for Leatrice and Mike and for the rest of the people who helped set up and brought the food. And we just thank you for your provision. In the name of Jesus, amen.